all Christians who defend the moderate use of drinking alcoholic beverages in social settings lean heavily on one or both of two assumptions. Assumption number one is that all wine is alcoholic. Therefore, when the Bible speaks of wine, the Bible is speaking of an alcoholic beverage in every instance. And the second assumption is that Jesus Christ personally drank wine, alcoholic wine. He made alcoholic wine and he served alcoholic wine to others. And if Jesus could drink, make, and serve alcoholic beverages, then it would certainly be inappropriate for Christians to speak of that as not being appropriate. Those two assumptions are always leaned upon by Christians who defend the moderate use of alcoholic beverages in one's lifestyle. However, it's interesting to me that those who make those assumptions do so without any acknowledgement of historic information, without any acknowledgement of the, the truth of history regarding wine that refutes their assumptions. And so their assumptions are based on shallow thinking and an ignorance of reality in history and development of wines in our world. And so we should, as Christians, always seek truth. Truth is more important than opinions. Truth is more important than preferences. Truth is the bottom line. And throughout the Bible, we are implored by God to seek truth. That's our greatest need. We don't need proof texts to make us feel good about what we want to do. Rather, we need to meditate on the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God and appeal to truth. Uh, we need to approach the Bible that way in every issue. One of the, one of the common uh, mistakes that people make in Bible study is they read the Bible through the lens of 21st century man. And to do so will sometimes lead one to make assumptions that aren't true. We should always read the Bible through the lens of the original receivers to whom the Bible was written to understand the people, the customs, the culture of the people that received that instruction is paramount to understanding what God meant when he wrote what he wrote. Assumptions that are created by assuming that the Bible is to be understood as if it were written in today's culture, those assumptions are corrected by truth. And so the bluff this morning, the bottom line up front this morning is simply this. The Bible provides absolutely no justification for consuming of alcoholic beverages as they exist in today's marketplace. Now, what can we learn from history and what can we learn from the Bible and and what can we learn that sheds light on this controversial subject? Well, let me address this in a series of questions. Question number one is this. Does God, God's allowance of something in the past mean that it is appropriate for today? If God allowed for something in the past, does that automatically mean that it's appropriate in my world today? And so let me start off with an acknowledgement 
that 3,400 years ago, 3,400 years ago, when God sent Moses and Moses recorded the book of Deuteronomy, which was written 3,400 years ago, when God did that, God did condone and God did encourage his people to socially consume some alcoholic beverages as they existed in their day. Does the acknowledgement of that mean that it is appropriate and condoned by God to consume any alcoholic beverage that is produced and marketed today? Well, this question and answer reveals whether or not we are going to think shallow or whether we're going to read and think and study. There's a principle I want to suggest to you. At first glance, the principle doesn't sound uh, right and correct, but I want you to think for a moment about this principle. Let me state the principle. And I believe it's printed in your little sermon worksheet. Forbidden or ungodly activities to be avoided by God's children have not been static or fixed throughout time. At times, an activity may change from one category to another, from something that's acceptable to something that's not acceptable, depending on specific situations. Let me throw out a couple of specific situations. Sometimes something is appropriate in one time and not appropriate in another because of the motivation behind the activity. And the activity can make some things right or wrong. But another situation is that there are times when the activity changes or culture around the activity changes. So the activity itself is not exactly the same as what it was in a previous time. There can be times when an activity was condoned and acceptable to God, but then the situations around that activity and the very activity itself changed in time and history and it became not appropriate for God's people. Now, Dr. Peter Masters, pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London, England, he's pastored that church for 50 years. That church has been in existence since 1650 and it was once pastored by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Dr. Peter Masters offered three examples of things that used to be appropriate that aren't appropriate because of the changes that have occurred in time. One of the examples he offered is the example of warfare. There was a time where God commanded Israel to annihilate an entire people group. Every man, woman, boy, girl, uh, the livestock, totally annihilate an entire people group. Now, there were motives, there were reasons There were situations in which that was a good thing. And God required God's people to annihilate that people group. Because we recognize that that was appropriate at one point in history does not mean that all warfare is appropriate. There is warfare that is appropriate. There is warfare that is evil and wicked. And so one cannot just say, well, God condoned warfare And so, therefore, God always condones warfare. That is not true. The principle is not static, or or the, the activity is not static in the category of right or in the category of wrong. There are extenuating circumstances. Dr. Peter Masters offered a second example, and that's slavery. 3,400 years ago, when God wrote the book of Deuteronomy, when it was recorded, the law of God, God allowed for slavery in Israel. And... And that slavery that God allowed was very carefully explained in the book of Deuteronomy. It was very carefully regulated. 
But it was not a blanket endorsement of all slavery. It was slavery in particular situations where someone was destitute. And in order not to starve to death, God condoned the ability for one human being to own another human being for a short period of time so they could provide for them as their slave. How they treated that person was, was, uh, was governed by God's principles. They could not be kept for over six years. And when they were released, they were released with enough property, enough money and value to establish themselves. So that six years of slavery took them from the point of starvation to the point of being able to provide for themselves. And God established that. Now, slavery in Greece and in Rome and in other countries was anything but an expediency that helped people. It was evil and it was wicked. We see that in a climax in our own country's history where slavery became a a wicked and an evil thing. It was, it always was in our country, a, a wicked and evil thing. Now, it would be wrong to say that because God condoned slavery 3,400 years ago in the land of Israel, that God condones and endorses all slavery anywhere. That would not be an appropriate thing to say. It would not be a true thing to say. Some activities are right sometimes and wrong other times, depending on motivations and situations and even the activity itself, whether it changes. Dr. Peter Masters offered a third illustration of that that he has seen in his lifetime, and that was dancing. He said that there in the Bible, the Israel culturally danced. Men danced with men. Women danced with women. They all joined hands in a big circle and danced around and celebrated. And to say that the dancing that we read about in the Bible means that God endorses what is oftentimes a sensual, romantic uh, dancing of unmarried people. It would be an incorrect thing that just because the word dancing is used in a proper, appropriate way, that all dancing is, de- is by definition proper and appropriate. Now, there are activities that are wrong one time in history and not wrong in another time in history, depending on circumstances around them. And that is an important thing, because when people who defend moderate drinking of alcohol go to a book written thousands of years ago and use that to endorse and say Jesus approves of all social drinking of alcoholic beverages in our world is not a legitimate argument or a wise thing to say. So the, the uh, fact that just because something is condoned in one time in history does not necessarily mean it's condoned in all times in history. There are extenuating circumstances. Let me ask a second question. The second question is, were the alcoholic beverages God condoned and encouraged in the past the same as alcoholic beverages being consumed today? The wines that were drunk in the Bible, are they the same as the alcoholic beverages that we can purchase and consume today? When we compare wine in the Bible to wine today, are we comparing apples with apples? And here is an area of truth that reveals the shallowness of the thinking and studying of many who are more concerned with condoning what they want rather than arriving at truth based on serious study. 
when listening to the proponents of modern drinking today, you would think that the wines mentioned in the Bible 3,400 years ago is the same thing as they can buy at the liquor store today, and nothing could be further from the truth. The first book I ever read about the development of wine in human history was a book written in the, in the 1800s. It was first published in 1871. It's entitled Bible Wines or the Laws of Fermentation and Wines of the Ancients. This book is still in print today. It was first published in 1871. It's still in print today. It is a profound, it is recognized as a profound research into the wines of the ancients, the Greek world, the Roman world, the, of Israel, of uh, ancient culture, and then what happened in human history regarding those wines. And uh, excellent book. It's not a simple, smooth uh, bedside reading. It is a book of quotes from people from a variety of countries in a variety of time frames throughout uh, the last uh, two, three thousand years. Interesting book. A more recent book that is on the market is Wine in the Bible, a biblical study on the use of alcoholic beverages by Samuel Bacchiocci. And uh, 300 pages dealing with wine uh, in history, what the wine in Bible history was, what the wine in different periods of history were, what wine is today, and then addressing every biblical reference to wine, uh, particularly uh, in the New Testament. And then there's also a, book, uh, a full-length book, and this is just the condensed edition that Dr. Peter Masters from the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London, England, wrote, Should Christians Drink? The Biblical Case for Abstinence. And a very interesting read. We have that in our bookstore here, and we have had... Um, Samuel Bakaochi's uh, book in the bookstore as well, and then a, a, a printed sermon by uh, Pastor Scott Wendell at Valley Forge Baptist Temple up in Pennsylvania, Alcohol, Eight Questions Every Christian Should Ask, and then we also have uh, a little booklet that, uh, that is called Wine in the Bible that we printed here, not written by anyone here, but it's got two parts to it that are uh, good information uh, studying this, this issue of of wine in history and wine in the Bible. Dealing with the question, all of that, dealing with the question, are the wines that are used in the Bible the same as the wines we can purchase in the liquor store today? We must not approach this subject assuming that what exists today mirrors what existed in the ancient world. We must look a little bit deeper than that. Now, there are two truths that we need to understand in answering the question, are the wines of Bible days the same as the wines of today? And uh, two truths. The first truth is the reality that wines of the ancients were often non-alcoholic. We would assume in reading the Bible, we see the word wine, because we know what the word wine means in our culture today, and wine is always used of an alcoholic beverage. So we would assume through a 21st century eyeball, we would read the Bible and say, well, uh, this is alcoholic beverages that are being talked about. That is, that is not a given, because the ancients valued non-alcoholic wines. And anyone who studies the wines of ancient Middle Eastern world knows that 
many times, most of the time, wine was non-alcoholic. Now, let me just uh, just mention a couple of facts that uh, a, a series of facts uh, very quickly here about wine in Israel as well as in Greek and Roman world. There was no refrigeration to be able to keep things from spoiling. The climate was hot. Natural fermentation occurred quickly. Grapes were harvested once a year. Families had to process that grape harvest to supply them a year's worth of beverage to consume as a family before the next grape harvest. There was no liquor industry producing fresh alcoholic beverages throughout the year. They had one shot at it. Whatever the wine they made, they made it in the summer and it lasted till the next summer. Safe drinking water was not always available. Fruit juices were preferred beverage and much effort would be expended to preserve their grape harvest so that it would last for their family to use throughout the entire year. The Greeks and the Romans, in addition to the Jews, took great measures to keep their fruit juices from fermenting. They didn't want them to ferment. They considered them to be more valuable unfermented. And so the Greeks and the Romans, as well as the Jews, took great measures to keep their fruit juices from fermenting because they preferred it that way. And they called their unfermented grape juice wine. The Roman historian Pliny often referred to unintoxicating wine, wine that did not make you drunk. The poet, the Roman poet Horace wrote in 35 years before Christ, he said, and I quote, here you drink under a shade cups of unintoxicating wine. The wines were not intoxicating. They were not fermented. They worked hard to keep them from fermentation. These are undeniable historical facts by, that anyone can learn by studying the history of wine in the ancient world. Very important facts uh, to be able to study. Now, what we're going to do is have a wine-making party here this morning. So, we're going to step back in history a couple of thousand years, and we're going to make some wine for us. I told Roger Thomas that we we're going to have a wine drinking party at church today, and then I corrected that and said, I'm the only one that's going to be drinking the wine. So it's not going to be a wine drinking party. It's going to be a wine making party here at church today. So... Let's make some wine. The first thing that I want us to uh, to understand is that when the in the summertime, when the people would harvest their grapes, they actually called the grapes that they harvested wine. I'm reading from Deuteronomy 16:13. Thou shalt observe. The Feast of Tabernacles, seven days after that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. That's mentioned also in Jeremiah and in Joel. Now, alcoholic wine doesn't grow on a tree. 
you can't harvest alcoholic wine. But they talked in different Old Testament passages about harvesting wine. I'm reading from Isaiah 65, verse 8. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, one saith, destroy it not. When the new wine is found in the cluster, inside that cluster is wine right now. And that which is harvested is is wine. This is wine according to the Word of God. And the fresh juice inside the grape while it's still in the grape, is wine to the people of Israel in the Bible. Now, when they would bring in the clusters of wine, they would take the clusters of wine to a, to a vat called a what? What is it, loud? A wine press. They didn't take it to a grape juice press. They took it to a wine press. And this is a hard one to demonstrate in real historical uh, accuracy, unless we had a really big vat up here and got a couple of guys up here to take off their shoes and roll up their pants legs and walk around in the vat. But that's how they pressed the wine from the grapes. Uh, they did so with their toes. And so, when they would harvest the grapes, they would press the grapes in a wine press to be able to release the wine from the grape cluster. And when they had done that, they would take the wine. That's wine in the Bible. The fresh pressed grape juice, as soon as it comes out of the cluster of grapes is very good wine. That is wine in the Bible. Now, they lived in a very hot climate. They had no refrigeration. So if they left that wine just for uh, just a few days, it would, it would ferment. And that wine fermented would now be alcoholic. Now, this is not alcoholic, just by way of clarification. This is non-alcoholic red grape juice cocktail. But for purposes of illustration, we're going to call this alcoholic wine for the purpose of demonstration. So, the grapes that they pressed and got the wine from the grapes, that grape wine would then become alcoholic in a short period of time. And they would have alcoholic wine for use. We'll just set that aside here for just a few moments. Now, they didn't want their wine to, um, to be alcoholic. So, they would keep some of their wine non-alcoholic. Now, this is non-alcoholic wine from great Mr. Welch. Did you know that Mr. Welch went into business producing Concord grape juice so that churches would have something to use in the Lord's Supper. That's why Mr. Welch produced Welch's grape juice, to provide juice for churches 
that was non-alcoholic to have for their Lord's Supper. So, this is non-alcoholic grape juice. And after they, after they would press the grape juice from the grapes and had wine from the grapes, one of the first things they would do in order to keep it from fermenting is they would filter it. They would take their freshly squeezed grape juice and they would filter their grape juice. Filtering their grape juice enabled them to have non-alcoholic, non-fermented uh, wine for uh, a longer period of time for their family to consume, to be able to use, because they didn't have a lot of safe drinking water, and so fruit juices were their preferred beverage in the absence of uh, sanitary water. And so they would filter their grape juice. Filtering it removed uh, the gluten from the, from the wine, and so, which is what would be strategic in the process of fermentation. So once they had filtered the, the, um, the wine, they could then take that filtered wine and it would last longer for their family to consume. And they would have filtered wine. They called it wine, or more specifically, they would sometimes call it filtered wine. Plutarch in AD 60 said filtered wine neither inflames the brain nor infects the mind and the passions and is much more pleasant to drink. Filtering their wine preserved it in a non-fermented state. And Plutarch said when you drink, ferment, or when you drink filtered wine, it will not inflame your brain and infect your mind and your passion, and it's much more pleasant to drink. than the unfiltered wine that was left to ferment, or that did ferment. So, filtered wine was unfermented. Now, something else that they would do to be able to preserve their, their wine from fermentation is that they would boil it. And they would boil the, the wine in order to remove... in order to remove the water and reduce it down into a paste and, or a syrup. They would reduce it down into a syrup, and the syrup would not ferment, was not fermented. They would then take the syrup throughout the year. They would use it as a flavoring in their cooking, or they would mix it, and it would become mixed wine that was unfermented, and this is the way they preserved their grape harvest, to be able to have non-fermented beverage to drink throughout the year. And when they reconstituted it by adding water back in, that was called mixed wine, and it was not fermented. Sometimes they would even reduce it down further 
That's a mixture of things. They would reduce it down further into a paste. They would boil it down into a syrup or boil it down further into a paste. The paste they would use as a spread on their breads or they would take the paste and they would do the same thing that they did with the syrups. They would take the paste and they would mix it and the mixed wine would be non-alcoholic, would be unfermented, and they would be able to drink the mixed wine throughout the year. From an early Christian volume entitled The Apostolic Tradition, we know that the early church followed the custom of drinking mixed wine, which was how they would preserve their grape harvest, non-alcoholic and unfermented. Now, there's a second truth you need to understand. The first truth has to do with the, the wines themselves, the fact that most wines were not alcoholic, and the word wine was used of non-alcoholic wines. You also need to understand that when the wine did ferment, the alcoholic wine that the ancients, ancients used was very weak. The alcoholic beverage, as a result of natural fermentation in the Middle East, would produce an alcoholic wine that averaged 9% to 11% alcoholic content. So we'll take an average of 10%. So, a... Alcoholic wine that you could get drunk on, that was fermented, that was alcoholic, at best, at that time in history, at best, it had an alcoholic content of 10%. And that was the most potent alcoholic beverage they could have, and you could get drunk on that fermented wine. However, it would be 1,200 years after the New Testament was written, before human ingenuity would discover ways to distill grains and ferment juices to a higher alcoholic content. Prior to 1,200 years after the New Testament was written, the highest alcoholic content you could have is what naturally fermented as a result of the heat, the weather, and so forth. And so during all of the Bible times, and for the 1,200 years after the Bible times, the most potent um, uh, wine they could have from grapes would be about 10%. Now, what would you do with this alcoholic wine that's 10% alcohol that you could get drunk on? And they did get drunk on. The Bible talks about people who got drunk on wine. From the book of Genesis forward, people did get drunk on alcoholic wine in the Bible. So what do you do with, an, with this, uh, this uh, alcoholic beverage, this unmixed wine? Back in 1975, Christianity Today carried an article written by a man by the name of Robert Stein. It was produced on, published on January, uh, I'm sorry, June 20th, 1975. 
And he wrote that the ancient Greeks, uh, he wrote an article about the ancient Greeks' use of wine. Stein explained that the ancient Greeks kept their unboiled, unmixed, and therefore alcoholic wine in large jugs. Before drinking, now this is the Greeks, this is not the Israelites, this is the pagan Greeks. Before they would drink that 10% alcoholic content beverage, they would pour it into another vessel and dilute it with water as much as 20 to 1. They would dilute it as much as 20 to 1, and that undiluted beverage was called wine, or sometimes technically mixed wine. And so they would take... And let's, uh, let's take a, a cup of 10% alcoholic wine. And they would put it in another vessel. And then they would mix it with water. Sometimes they would mix it one to one. One part water to one part alcoholic wine. Now they have just diluted the 10% beverage to 5% alcohol content. Sometimes they would mix it 3 to 1. That's 2, 3. Now I've just diluted the 10% alcoholic content to 2.5%, which is beneath the level of alcohol used in our market today to qualify a beverage as alcoholic. Now, in today's standards, this isn't even considered to be alcoholic. That's mixing it three parts water to one part alcoholic wine. However, Robert Stein said they mixed it as much as 20 to 1. You remember... You remember Ulysses in Homer's Odyssey? In the ninth book of his Odyssey, Homer told of Ulysses putting in his boat a goat skin of sweet black wine that he diluted 20 parts of water to one part of that sweet black wine before he would drink it. Now, can you imagine? That was three to one. Four to one, five to one, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, twenty to one. And I started out with only ten percent alcohol content. What is the alcohol content now in the wine that I'm serving my family? Minuscule. And you could drink as much as you want of that wine, and you'd never get drunk on wine mixed, 20 parts water to one part wine that started out as only 10% alcohol content. Did you get that? Unmixed wine with an alcohol content of 10%. Diluted with water in ratios of 1 to 1, 2 to 1, 3 to 1, all the way up to 20 to 1, 
in order to have a beverage that was safe to drink because that little bit of alcohol killed the bacteria. And in a in a climate without refrigeration, without safe water, there was a great need to preserve their grape harvest to be used by their family for the entire year. And the vast majority of the use of that wine was non-alcoholic or so slightly alcoholic that it merely provided a safe beverage for the family to drink. All of it was called wine. And the result was, depending on the ratio of mixing, something safe for your kids to drink in a culture that didn't have safe drinking water. And the Bible called it wine. Twelve hundred years later, man discovered how to make higher contents of wine. But we're talking about wine in the biblical era. So one thing you could do with this, with this alcoholic beverage is you could mix it with water so the alcohol content mixed with water would kill the bacteria and provide you a safe beverage to drink. And how potent it was would depend on how the ratio of how much water you mixed in. The other thing you could do with it is you could just drink it the way it is. 10% alcoholic content, you could drink it and you could get drunk on it. A guy whose name I cannot pronounce, begins with an M, from Athens, said, and I quote, The gods have revealed wine to mortals to be the greatest blessing for those who use it aright. Now, this is not Israel, and this is not someone speaking from a position of understanding God. Here, this is a pagan talking about how the gods of his culture has given as a blessing to them wine. And he said, it's a, the greatest blessing for those who use it aright, but for those who use it without measure, the reverse. It gives food to them that take it and strength in mind and body. In medicine, it's most beneficial. It can be mixed with liquid... And it brings aid to the wounded. Now listen carefully. In daily intercourse, as a daily beverage to drink, to those who mix it moderately, it gives good cheer. But if you overstep the bounds, it brings violence. Mix it half and half, and you get madness. One part water to one part alcoholic wine gives you a beverage that's 5% alcohol. Barely strong enough to be considered alcoholic in today's standards. And if you drink it at that strength, it'll bring you madness. I'm sorry, it'll bring you, um, it'll bring you uh, good cheer. If you, let's see. Mix it half and half, you get madness. Unmixed. If you just drink it without mixing it with water at all, you're drinking a 10% alcoholic beverage far below most alcoholic beverages that are bought at the liquor store to consume today. But if you drink it unmixed, bodily collapse. This is a pagan man who sees the use of alcohol in his culture and says when you mix it down to a low alcoholic content, it's a good drink. 
If you only mix it one to one, it'll make you mad, 5%. If you drink it straight at 10%, bodily collapse. Now, if modern Christians who wish to defend the moderate use of alcoholic beverages would limit their consumption of alcohol to mirror the wines drunk by God's people in ancient times. That means they would drink non-alcoholic wine most of the time. And when they drink alcoholic wine, they would drink a wine that was so very weak in content that it was just enough alcohol to kill the bacteria and make the beverage safe for the family to drink. Do Christians really want to mimic the alcohol use of the Bible? Or do they want an excuse for what they prefer? That depends on whether you are a shallow thinker or a deep thinker. Whether you are a person who studies or a person who just looks for proof texts to make you feel better about what you want to do. Smith's Bible Dictionary, written back in 1863. This was about, what, uh, 400 years after man began to make wines more potent. Smith's Bible Dictionary, quoting Canon Farrar from 1863, said, The simple wines of antiquity was, less, was incomparably less deadly than the stupefying and ardent beverages of our Western nations. The wines of antiquity was more like syrups. Many of them were not intoxicant, many more intoxicant in a small degree, and all of them, as a rule, taken only when largely diluted with water. Are the wines of today the same as the wines in biblical times? Not by a long shot. Can I use the Bible's con, a, a acceptance of wine as they had it in their culture as an excuse for consuming the alcoholic beverages that are multiplied times more potent and deadly and intoxicating and addictive than what those wines were in the Bible? No. We would not be comparing apples to apples or even grapes to grapes. We'd be comparing two things that are very, very, very different, ignorant of their differences. Well, let me just mention these other couple of questions before we close. Were there boundaries that limited the use of alcoholic beverages in the past? Yes, there were. There was a boundary of availability. There wasn't an industry producing Alcoholic beverages year-round. There was the grape harvest in the summer. And what you do with that grape harvest has to last for an entire year. That limited the use of alcoholic wine as well as non-alcoholic wine in biblical times. It had a great... By the way, the, the wedding at Cana, that wedding occurred just before the Passover in the spring. It had been months and months and months 
since they had taken in their last grape harvest and they didn't have enough syrup and paste to mix down and make the beverage for the wedding guests. They ran out of wine. And so Jesus Christ made some fresh, sparkling, desirable, what that culture considered the very best wine, which was unfermented, non-alcoholic wine that would have been consumed in that era of history by that family. We live in a very different world today. This is not a world where a family harvests its fruits and grains once a year and produces from that harvest a year's worth of safe beverage. It's wrong and lacking in reason to assume that since God allowed the use of a slightly alcoholic watered-down beverage as a safe drink 2,000 to 3,400 years ago, that he approves of the unlimited supply of highly toxic and addictive alcohol to people who have an unlimited, safe, non-toxic, non-addictive beverages from which to choose. We are not at a place and at a time where we don't have drinking water. And we need something to kill the bacteria before we drink our water. That's a totally different world. The boundary of availability limited their use. And then there was the boundary of restrictive use. Even in a culture that valued unfermented fruit juices as a good beverage, and even if it was fermented, it was just barely had an alcoholic content that made the water safe. In spite of that culture, even in that culture, God demanded that some people not drink even the watered-down, hardly alcoholic beverage. He forbid it for priests at the temple. He forbid it to kings. He forbid it to Nazarites. He said total abstinence, even in a culture where they used a slightly alcoholic beverage for safe beverages to drink. There, was lim- there were limitations even in that culture. Fourth question, how do I know whether wine in the Bible is the non-alcoholic or the alcoholic? Well, context is everything. If I, if I said this morning, I love my wife, I love my car, I love my dog, I, I love my, my tools, I, I love... You would say, you love your dog... Just as much as you love your wife? No, everyone knows context is everything. You use the one word love and you use it in a variety of different ways and they don't mean the same thing and they don't refer to the same thing. And context tells you how you're using that word. The same is true of the word wine in the Bible. There are contexts that it's very obvious that the wine is addictive. There are verses where it's very obvious that the wine is a wonderful, delightful blessing from God. And there are places in the Bible where the word wine doesn't have any moral judgment, good or bad. The context dictates whether the wine is alcoholic or non-alcoholic. One final question. Has the danger posed by alcoholic beverages in the past changed? The use of fermented beverages in Israel in ancient history had its problems. That's why 
Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Even the, the alcohol that they had from natural fermentation was a problem, and God condemned it. Proverbs 23, Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. These were mildly alcoholic. You had to consume a lot of it to become drunk. And yet God says, Look not upon the wine when it's red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright at the last, it biteth like a serpent, stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, and as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They that have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. And when I wake, I'll seek it yet again. As bad as the abuse of alcohol in ancient world, where their alcohol was hardly potent, In comparison to today's standards, the alcohol of today is infinitely worse. 40% of all violent deaths, 50% of all traffic fatalities, 25% of hospitalized psychiatric patients, all because of the use of the legal drug of alcohol in America. From the back cover of Samuel Bakiochi's book, quote, The use of alcoholic beverages has become America's number one public enemy, costing over $117 billion annually and claiming at least 100,000 lives per year. Twenty-five times as many as all illegal drugs combined. You take all illegal drug use in America... You take the cost of those drugs to the American taxpayer. You take the number of lives that are lost to those illegal drugs. Alcohol causes 25 times more people to die. Alcohol is America's number one drug problem. Fox News, January 2020 released a report or or reported on a report that the number of deaths related to alcohol in the United States doubled between 1999 and 2017. Eighteen years, the number of deaths from alcohol doubled, leaving one million Americans dead because of alcohol in those 18 years. Did the mildly alcoholic beverages of ancient history in Bible times cause problems? Yes. Enough problems for God to condemn it. Are the problems we face in our culture today the same? No. No, nowhere's close. You can't find the level of problems caused by alcohol in today's culture, you cannot find that in ancient history of Bible days. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Let me end this message with two pictures. The first 
is a sad ending, and the second is a good ending. Let's start with the sad ending. It was 1999, September 19th. A young lady named Jacqueline Saborito from Caracas, Venezuela, had come to the United States to study. She was at a birthday party near Austin, Texas. She and her friends left and accepted a ride home from another classmate. That's her on the far left. That's Jacqueline, 1999. On that short ride home, a truck driven by the man in the middle was drunk. He veered across the lanes of traffic and he hit the car that Jacqueline was driving head on. Immediately killing two of the five people in that car. Jacqueline was one of the three that survived. She was in the passenger seat in the front. The car burst into flames. People tried to get him out. They couldn't get Jacqueline out of the, out of the burning vehicle. There were people there, but they didn't have the right equipment to cut into the car and get her out. So she was in the burning vehicle until the people, the fire department with adequate equipment got there and were able to extract her from the vehicle. They thought she was dead. They put her in an ambulance. They sent her to the burn unit of a nearby hospital and the doctors all thought she would die that night. But she didn't die. She lived. That's Jacqueline on the right. Her face became the poster child against drunk driving in America for many, many years. She died in her 40s a year and a half ago from cancer. Jacqueline met the young man that was driving the vehicle. She was left with second and third degree burns to more than 60% of her body. 120 reconstructive operations. In June of 2001, the man that hit her was convicted on two counts of intoxicated manslaughter. And she went to the trial and she spoke with him. And she forgave him for what he did to her. The young man later said, and I quote, what sticks out in my mind is Jacqueline saying, Reggie, I don't hate you. It's really touching. Someone can look you in the eyes and have that much compassion after all that I've caused. Now, my question is this to the person who condones the use of alcoholic beverage in a culture where we have every opportunity to consume healthy beverages that are non-alcoholic. Those that know that alcoholic is deadly, it's destructive, it's intoxicating, it's addictive, but they defend their right to use it anyway. My question is, what would your opinion be if that was your daughter? Or if that young man was your son. 
would you still condone the use of such a deadly drug in America if that was your family? That's a sad ending to the story of alcohol. But let me give you a good ending. Here's a happy ending. This happy ending is the story of Stan and Mary Hess. Stan and Mary Hess were visitors to Valley Forge Baptist Temple a few years ago. They came to the church as visitors, just there to take in a service. And Scott Wendell got up and he preached a sermon on alcohol. Very similar to what I've spoken of today. And as a matter of fact, they took his sermon and they printed it. And there's a copy of this that we bought 40 copies so every family could take a copy home with them after the service uh, this morning. By the way, ushers, I forgot to tell you, they are in the ushers' closet and need to be put on a couple of tables, one in the foyer and one in the fellowship hall, so that when we leave in a few moments, people can access those. Scott Wendell preached on alcohol, a sermon very similar to what I've shared with you today. And Stan and his wife Mary, they are the operators of one of the largest hot air balloon uh, companies, uh, tourist companies in America, up, located up in the Poconos up in, in Pennsylvania. They had, at, up to that time, they had served over 5,000 alcoholic beverages to their clients at the end of a hot air balloon ride. And they listened to Scott Wendell preach a message on biblical wines and the history of wines in humanity. And he and Mary went home and they poured out every ounce of liquor in their house. They poured it all down the drain. And they decided that day that they would not serve another alcoholic beverage in their company. And they began to serve sparkling cider as opposed to an alcoholic beverage. And within a month, they were all baptized at Valley Forge and became members of Valley Forge Baptist Temple. And continued to grow and learn more about the Word of God and what it means to live a Christian life. The sermon he preached, you can take home with you and be able to read it. It's a happy ending to an alcohol story. And we thank God for happy endings. What do you do with a sermon like this? Let me give you four things you can do with a sermon like this. Number one, you can decide, now that I know, now that I know what wine is in the Bible and in ancient culture and how different it is today, I'm never going to drink alcohol again. That's one thing you can do with a sermon like this. Second thing you can do with a sermon like this is say, I need to study this more thoroughly. That's why we're giving out this. There's this booklet and there's another one, The Wine in the Bible. If you could put some of both booklets. The second one uh, is, um, there's only a few copies of that, but if, if you're really interested and you'll read it, you can take one. You can study. You can take the, reference, the books that are at the end of your worksheet and you can, you can study and find out if what I've told you is the truth. And you can pray and seek God. As to what God's opinion is to the kind of alcohol we have today, which is vastly different than what existed in the Bible. A third thing you can do is teach your children the truth about alcohol. We taught our children about the alcoholic beverages that are sold in liquor stores today. We taught them when they were little of the evils of alcohol. We warned them. We taught them. 
the destructive nature of it as a beverage and the horrendous cost in lives. You can teach your children the truth about alcohol to protect your children and grandchildren from the destruction of alcohol. And one thing, one final number four, you can love those who have chosen to ignore history and the Bible and reason. You can love them anyway. This is not something to divide friendships over. You can love people who don't make wise choices. And maybe through your example and your love and compassion for them, maybe someday they will come to the place where they will be more careful in the decisions they make for their family regarding wine's use and understanding wine in the Bible.